This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Shall we start then with a word of prayer? Thank you, our gracious Lord, for this opportunity we have to look at these Asian religions, in particular Hinduism and Buddhism. Now, uh, I pray for clarity of thinking and of expression uh, during this time as we communicate. Uh, Be with us. We just ate, but still uh, give us the, um, the energy and the alertness necessary to really uh, engage and understand and then use this in order to share the good news of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, I'm going to start then uh, talking about Hinduism. The first thing that I would like to mention or to draw your attention to is for Hindus, they don't call their religion Hinduism. So that is the first surprise, you know, because, you know, you and I, usually we call these people Hindus, but we have to understand that their religion, they call it Sanatana Dharma. Sanatana means eternal, by the way. And then Dharma uh, has several translations. It could be cosmic order, could be religion, could be righteousness, you see, uh, or it could be faith. You know, the faith that you adopt. So Hindus, they call themselves the, that they have the eternal religion. Now, they have the right to do that. And as you know, we Adventists, we believe in religious liberty, religious freedom, which means that people have the right to claim whatever they want to claim, right? Now, we don't have to believe it, but people have the right to claim whatever. So they call themselves Sanatana Dharma. Uh, So, um, I don't think I'm going to go through this. I'm going to go directly to, um, okay. All right. So, at the end of today's presentation, you know, I like to tell people that so that they see what they are. uh, At the end of today's uh, presentation, I hope, that you will be more acquainted with the words like dharma, I just mentioned, you know, which is religion or order, uh, you know, harmony, universal harmony, samsara, moksha, atman, brahman, trimurti, brahma, vishnu, shiva, krishna, avatar, uh, diva, yuga, yoga, bhakti, bhagavad gita, veda. So these are words that are connected to the world of Hindu. Okay, uh, so I will, of course, it's difficult to really go through each one of them so that you become expert at the end, but I can, uh, uh, I will just use what will help us better understand this religion, this worldview, because as you know, there are many people today, almost a billion, who claim this religion, Hinduism. Look at the statistics. There are about one billion Hindus. This is the third largest world religion. And I share this with you because we ought to realize the mission of the church will not be finished until we reach these people also. And in order to reach these people, we ought to know what they think, what they believe, their practice and so forth, in order to present the gospel in a way that is meaningful to them. Because if you scratch where it doesn't itch, you are not relevant. (laughs) And if you speak only your language in a way that other people don't understand, then what is the purpose of it? You see, uh, it is not enough for us to come and tell people, oh, you know, uh, we have the three angels' messages. They have no clue. No idea what it means. We say, oh, uh, the first angel message is fear God. But what does it mean, fear God? You know? Uh, all those things, so we need to understand how people think in a way to relate to them meaningfully. By the way, this is what God did. What did he do? He came and became a human being. 
live in human condition and human flesh, right? So that he can relate to us in a way we can understand. So basically what we do, we are following God's examples. When you think about it, in India alone, by the way, I will be in India in, a, in less than two weeks. I'm going to train some people there on how to relate to political leaders and present to them Adventism in a way that is relevant and, and you know, how to basically do public affairs work. So India, eight... 180 million, Nepal, 22 million, Indonesia, you know, you were mentioning that, 17 million. That's, that's, that is a sizable population there when you think about it, right? Bangladesh, 10 million, Pakistan and Sri Lanka, 3 million, Malaysia, mm, uh, and, and the USA, each, by the way, 1.5 million. So there's no way, you, if you live in the US, you have met a Hindu. Right? I mean, uh, there's no way that you cannot meet a Hindu here. So you have met a Hindu, in other words. So uh, this is just brief, so I'm not going to spend too much time on these things that you can read even online and so forth and so on. So you are not here just for... So in the UK, one million. So that's very sizable and that is very important. You are welcome. I'm slowing down a little bit to let these people take their seats. I believe in the parable of the Bible that even 11th hour people should receive, you know, so. Okay, now, you ought, <laughs> what makes this religion unique? Wonderful. I thought I, I, I did something wrong this morning. Nobody gave me water, but this time, <laughs> thank you very much. Okay. So, this is... I can even say one of the most complex religion. Why? It is not one religion. It is a family of religions. For example, Hindu, Hinduism, Sanatana Dharma, is composed of a multitude of religious and philosophical trends. Now, remember earlier for those who were, who were here, Islam is also a mosaic. Complex. Of course, there is a core, what, what people call the five pillars of Islam and so forth, yes. But when you start looking, it's very complex and diverse. So Hinduism is even more. When you think about the henotheism of the ancient Veda, Vaish, uh, Vaishnavism, uh, Shaivism, etc., 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 pantheism, basically, you have several philosophical trends. I'm not going to spend too much time uh, um, on this, because I don't want to be technical, that's not the, uh, the uh, idea here. Uh, but when you, basically, what this is saying, Hindus, they believe in one God, they believe in three gods, they believe in 33 million gods. They believe in no God also. So you have all those, that God is in everything, pantheism, right? Uh, and you have this Trimurti, the three gods, uh, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, you know, etc., etc., etc. So you have basically a very complex philosophical system. Now, of course, by the way, notice in my presentation, there's a first part to inform you about the religion. Then the second part is more, okay, but how to relate to these people. So... But despite the impressive diversity of beliefs and practice, rituals and schools of thought, there are some clearly identifiable core at the foundation of Hinduism. Yeah? Now that is helpful, you know, because you can identify a core that you can say, oh, okay, this is really... Uh, now, think about this. And the core is about how to understand the human human beings' deepest need. What is it that people want? Now, Hindu uh, sages or uh, thinkers thought that there are several things that are candidates. Some people think that what human beings want is pleasure. Others will say success or service. However, for Hindus, this cannot achieve 
or cannot be life's ultimate goals. All these things are like toys. Now, again, I'm trying to help, <laughs> help us delve into this world. It's different. It's different. So Hindus think that all the things that we are looking for are actually like toys. In other words, what people really want is actually infinite being, infinite awareness, and infinite bliss. That is what people want. Not these toys of success, of money, of pleasure, they will say. Now, and by the way, this is one of the reasons why in the 70s, uh, during the time, uh, you know, in, uh, there was, uh, during that time in uh, Europe, many young people disenchanted because of materialism, you know, and uh, there was a time of the Beatles and all this thing, uh, Kathmandu, Hindu, many European young people wanted something more spiritual, more enduring than just, you know, superficial, uh, you know, pleasure, entertainment. Now we are living in that kind of a culture, again, where entertainment is about everything. People are uh, valued or thought to be important when they can do things or when they can entertain others, regardless if what they, what they are saying is true or not, by the way. So there was here. Anyway, so Hindus were thinking that maybe what we really want is infinite being, infinite awareness, and infinite bliss. Uh, however, and now let me put it this way. This is something I need to explain very simply but clearly. This infinite being, infinite bliss, infinite awareness is at the reach of every person. Why is that? It's simple. Because Hindu, and this is fundamental now, Hindus believe that human beings were God. In other words, in Hindu terms, divinity, Brahman, and the soul, Atman, they were one. There was a connection between divinity, Brahman, and Atman, soul. By the way, the word Atman, you find that in the word Mahatma, like Gandhi, right? Ma, the, uh, the big Atma, soul, the great soul, something like that. So, uh, so, so basically you have then the problem, and I will come to that, uh, for Hindus is that the Brahman, the divinity, has been disconnected with the soul. Question, before even I develop that further, then what is the solution for Hindus? Re well, yeah, but there's probably the word re reconnection. Yeah, yeah, I mean, joining, reunion, in other words. Reunion between the soul and Brahman. Okay? Now, the question is then, how can they reunite? I'm, I'm just giving you a summary here. How can they reunite? For Hindus, simple. Through yoga. So in the Western world, for many people, yoga is just an exercise, relaxation, you know, I mean, to become a little more flexible or this kind of thing. But for Hindus, yoga is a path. A path to reunite, reconnect with your divinity, with who you really are. So that's why... Uh, incidentally, now, even some Hindus do not know this, but when, they, when Hindu greets you, like, uh, you know, how would they say? Namaste. But namaste, what does it really mean? Literally, from your grace, from your greatness, because they recognize the divinity that is in you, even in the way of greeting people. Now, something of interest here, then listen to this. So underlying the human self, and animating it is a reservoir of being that never dies, that is divinity, and is never exhausted and is unrestricted in consciousness or bliss. So this infinite center of every life of, or Atman is no less than Brahman, God. See? So that's why when Hindu looks at you, they look as if, well, you are a manifestation of Brahman somewhat. 
when you will be reconnected. The problem is that this infinite center of being, the eternal one, is buried under the almost um, impenetrable mass of distractions, false assumptions, and self-regarding instinct that comprise our surface selves. Now, this is, again, another world than Christianity, another world than Islam. This is a world where they think that infinity, divinity, is within you, right? But that divine in you is buried under layers of distractions. Eh? Because Hindus think that the problem with humanity, always when you deal with your neighbors and their religion, ask what is, this, what is the problem that they are trying to solve? Now, for Hindus then, the problem is that, okay, we are separated from divinity, from our true self, by what? Well, by distractions. They think human beings are so full of distraction, it's just in, uh, incredible. So, basically, a lamp can be covered with dust and dirt to the point of obscuring its light completely. So, basically, for Hindus, the light, the divine light that is in you is covered by dust. And now you can understand, they try to remove the dust, whatever solution they will come up with. The problem life poses for the human self is to cleanse the dross of its being to the point where its infinite center can shine forth in full display. See? Now, uh, so basically, uh, what if we could bring to light that is really the most important question for Hindu. So then, look, uh, maybe I should just share this with you. Let me go. Um, okay. Let me explain to you this first. So if the problem is that our true self is hidden, that there is like dross around our personality, our, the light that is within, then what should we do? For Hindus, very simple. Right? We should reconnect with divinity. How should we reconnect? Four ways. That they call, by the way, yoga. Huh? The first one, is karma yoga. Now, karma yoga, why karma yoga? Well, Hindu believe that Hindus believe that if you do bad things in this world, you have to come back and basically pay because of the bad deeds, the bad karma that you did in your previous life. Right? So, how does it happen? Well, it happens through reincarnation, which is called samsara. The, you return from a previous life of bad deed to pay. So therefore, how to undo that is the way, the yoga of karma, karma yoga. Now, karma yoga is Hindus want to do good deeds so that this will provide you with a capital to reverse the bad karma. That's why you find very kind, helpful, generous Hindus who will give, you know, like their, uh, from their wealth, do things to help the poor and all these things for the sake of reversing the bad deeds they have done. You see, the motivation sometimes is important to know, but still, you find kind people, nice people, doing things in order to get something, okay? So the first path to reconnect Brahman with Atman is through Karma Yoga. The second path is called Jnana Yoga. That's the yoga, the, by the way, the word yoga is the same in the, uh, in the European root that means yoke and therefore bridge, okay? Sorry. So basically then you have the first karma yoga, good deeds, the yoga of good deeds. 
The second, Jnana Yoga, knowledge. That's why you find Hindus learning. Learning the writings, uh, you know, because when you develop knowledge, that actually helps the reconnection with your true self. Okay? Then you have another kind of yoga that they call Raja Yoga. So Raja Yoga is yoga through meditation. Uh, <laughs> now this is important for Hindu because meditation helps prevent the distractions. Remember, if the true self is hidden uh, under layers of distraction, negligence, right? So how do you prevent or get away from being distracted by meditation. So that's why Hindu will spend hours meditating and so forth, shunning away from distracting elements, basically. So that's number three. And then you have a final uh, yoga, again, yoke connection, that is called the uh, Vakti Yoga. Vakti means literally devotion. That means that a Hindu can commit himself or herself to worshipping a divinity. Whether Brahman, whether Shiva, whether Vishnu, or even Krishna. Yeah? If they commit themselves, they think that, okay, that could in fact reverse. Right? The, 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 the disconnection. That nostalgia. That loss of connection with the divine being. Okay, what did I just say in summary and simple form? One of the Hindus say that you, you are divine, but your divinity has been disconnected with your soul now. In fact, it is as if human beings are living in exile. So the goal of this life and Hinduism, that's why they call it the eternal religion, Sanatana Dharma, is to reconnect you with your true self. How do you reconnect? Well, through four paths. Karma yoga, to reverse the bad deeds of your previous lives and prevent reincarnation. Right? Jnana yoga, knowledge. Raja yoga, meditation. And then, bhakti yoga, devotion. That's why you find Hindu sacrificing, traveling, go to the Ganges River, and you name it, Kathmandu, etc., 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 in order to gain favor. Now, you understand why it is important to understand the worldview and religion so that you can share the gospel. So if I were, and I will come back to that later, if I were to meet with the Hindu, think about the idea already of karma yoga. The good news will be tailored about forgiveness, right? See, God doesn't hold your past deeds, mistakes, errors, sins against you, you know, so etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, if do you see what I'm saying? You know, so basically, you tell her, you adapt your message according to the immediate need before you can share any further, right? Now, just to illustrate some of these things, let me. Let me, I want to just, um, of course, I'm not going to here spend time too much uh, with the different uh, Hinduism and so forth, so on, uh, uh, and this, you know, okay. Uh, I, <laughs> I would like to just go here, uh, because this can be helpful for, um, this can be helpful as you look at other world religions. You see, each religion, identifies a basic problem, a core issue, or a set of problems and challenges all human beings face, need to overcome and be delivered from. In light of that, a religion is basically a proposal, right? To try to bring a solution, to offer a solution, adopt core values, right? And each one of them proposes benefits. Think about it, right? So, so that is what all religions try to do. So Hinduism, uh, and I, uh, so far, I just mentioned quickly dharma, karma, right? Bad deeds and so forth. Samsara, that is the reincarnation and so forth and so on. Moksha is salvation, release, basically. 
uh, Atman, soul, you know, I mentioned that. Brahman, divinity, and you have other things. So, let me move on. What are the problems that Hindu try to solve? As I, was, as I mentioned, bad karma, right? Two, samsara. They don't want to reincarnate. Three, ignorant and therefore immaturity and dissatisfaction. This is why Hindu think that you need the jnana yoga knowledge in order to reverse this one. They think people are ignorant, uh, are ignorant rather, of their true self. Eh? And this is also, by the way, a form of destruction. And then, of course, they will add a life of righteousness. Eh? Uh, I mean, a lack of righteousness, rather. So, let me now, just for practical pur uh, pur uh, purposes, I want to tell you a story to illustrate why in Hindu, Think the way they do. And here is the story. A traveler was journeying through a dense forest when he encountered a mad elephant which charged him with a raised trunk. As he turned to flee, a terrible demoness with a naked sword appeared before him and barred his path. That's the story. And then there was a great tree near the track and he ran. Remember, he is fleeing the elephant, and now the demoness, you know. And now, he, <laughs> uh, 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 there was a great tree near the track. He, he ran up to it, hoping to find safety in its branches. But he could find no foothold in its smooth trunk. His only refuge was an old well covered with grass and weeds at the foot of the tree. And into it, he what? Leaped. Looking down, he saw that the bottom did not contain water, but was surrounded by snakes, which hissed at him as he hung above them. In their midst was a mighty python, its mouth agap, waiting to catch him when he fell. Now, just think about the story. This man is, you know, running away from, from what? An elephant. Then a demoness. And now hanging, look, snakes. Now, this is a Hindu story, by the way. Okay? I didn't make it up. <laughs> this is a story. <laughs> okay. But something happened. Raising his head, though, he saw two mice. One white, the other black, busily eating away at the roots. What are you thinking right now? These mice... You know, remember, he's hanging, right? So if the mice succeed, what happens? He will fall. And what happens when he falls? The snake and the python and so forth. But here's the story. Meanwhile, the wild elephant ran to the well and, and rage at losing its victim, began charging at the root of the tree. Thus, he dislodged a honeycomb, which hung from a branch above the well, and it fell upon the man hanging there so precariously. Now another problem, right? However, angry bees swarmed around his head and tormented him with their stings. But one drop of honey fell on his brow, rolled down to his face, and reached his lips. Immediately, he forgot his peril and thought of nothing more than obtaining another drop of honey. Who said amen to that? <laughs> no, but why do they tell this story? Now notice, this person is really in danger, right? I mean, for the elephant, the demoness, the python, the snake, I mean, you name it, right? And then the angry bees, but all of a sudden, because honey touched his lips, he forgot everything else and was only thinking about one thing. When is the next drop of honey? Why are they telling this story? The point of this story is that most people are like the traveler. They focus their attention on the things of this world as the traveler focuses simply on the sweet taste of the honey. 
But the honey gives no solution to his deep, real problem. Actually, I should even say problems here, right? So most people, according to Hindus, pay no attention to their deep religious need or problem. They think that basically the things of this world provide no solution to that problem, whether we live grandly, barely survive, this is the point of the story. And many religious traditions would even say, oh, it's true that the satisfactions, the pleasures of this world do not really ultimately satisfy the need of the soul. Eh? Now, most religions will, will agree with that, but the solution that Hindu proposes, right, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is also the ultimate. They believe that this is the ultimate solution. That's why they call it Sanatana Dharma. Right? Now, let me mention a few things then. Uh, hmm. This is, there's no time to spend on this because I want to go to Buddhism shortly so that to give you another perspective. But you, you, you can see for the Hindu texts and so forth, what are the goal of life, you have the uh, classes, what are the sacred texts, I'm not going to, this will be, this will be shared with you, so no problem. Uh, ag again, okay, let me just move on to, okay, because all these are information you can find. Uh, I wanted to just mention to you to this, this, this is very interesting. Uh, Hindu believes that you know, life is like a cycle. Hmm? And of course, for them, you have millions of years. The first cycle, you know, Sartya Yuga. You know, these are like ages that go and come. But I wanted to share with you just the last one, the fourth one. It's really interesting. It is called Kali Yuga. They call it the, uh, the age of darkness. That is the age in which we live right now, they say. In this age of darkness, uh, they, which will last a certain time, they will say, the Kali Yuga is marked by materialism, hypocrisy, technology, and terrible wars. Few humans now remember their divinity. Again, notice. But this is what they believe. And once I know, notice, by the way, something even important, they think that during the Kali Yuga, the avat some of the avatar will come back, what they call avatar, manifestation of divinity. Interestingly, there are 10 avatars, but the one who is coming, the 10th one, will be coming mounting on a horse. Eh? And some of you would remember Revelation, etc., etc., etc. And some Hindus go so far as to say that Jesus was actually one of the avatars, as Buddha was. Uh, they will think. So, uh, then let me just mention this just briefly. Uh, objective of human lives, righteousness, uh, that, that, that is for the Dharma, livelihood, uh, karma, pl pl uh, pleasure, but ultimately it's about mos uh, moksha, that is liberation, freedom from samsara. So notice, then, if I know that the ultimate goal of Hinduism is liberation, right, then we can approach Hindus talking about freedom. Yeah? In other words, you take their beliefs as a bridge in order to share your hope, but then you leave it to God's Holy Spirit to lead the heart. Okay? Now, it's really important uh, and I could continue, but let me move on briefly to some of the features of Buddhism. I have not finished, uh, I'm not done at all with Hinduism here because that will really take, um, or maybe, maybe I should sh share this with you. Because of this belief, because of this belief that uh, of karma, you know, people live in a previous life, and did some bad deeds and so forth, so they reincarnate and so forth. That is why Hindus accept the caste system without a problem. 
For many of us, the caste system is, you know, I mean, terrible even to think about. But you have on the top the Brahmin, priest. Then you have the Kshatriya, warrior, ruler caste. You have here, after that, the Vaishya, uh, merchant, artisan, farmer, and so forth. And then you have the Sudra. And then, fifth, the non-caste, often called the untouchables. When this... These people are despised in India. Even though, constitutionally, this has been abolished, but in reality, it is, it, it is very, very, very vivid. And people accept their fate because they say, oh, well, maybe in my previous life I did some bad things, so it's normal that I'm in this condition right now. Okay? So, imagine you come with the good news. And that is why most people in India becoming Christians are actually from this lower caste. And understandably, they accept the good news. Okay, let me move on to, uh, you, see, you see, there is just so much in the, each one of them. And as I mentioned uh, to you uh, earlier, you can uh, uh, consider, because I take time with, uh, with the four DVD to, uh, to you know, go more in, uh, go more in detail. So uh, there are four is, and one of them is precisely on Hinduism and, Buddhism, um, and another one on Buddhism. Because this, this helps to better understand how to package the gospel. If people need hope, if, pe if people need forgiveness, then you emphasize those things. The revelation of God that, that you will emphasize is one that says, well, God doesn't make any exception of person. He makes no difference because all are sinners and are deprived of, God, of God's glory. However, salvation is available to everyone precisely. Now, again, this is how we uh, uh, approach Hindus uh, based on their belief system. Now, think about it. I mentioned that they are waiting, like in the Kali Yuga, the last stage of uh, an uh, avatar who will come and, you know, at the end of the world and he will be mounting a horse. So you can tell the story. Again, remember, as I was saying this morning, we are not God's lawyers. We are God's witnesses. Okay. So we are not there to try to defend God, to, you know. No, no, we are his witnesses. And the witness, all we are asked to do, tell the story, what you see. Right? How did you experience Jesus? Testify. But sometimes you find very angry Christians as if their job is to be God's lawyers uh, whose own purpose would be to tear apart the enemy. Oh, this Baptist, da, da, da. Oh, this Catholic, you know, the beast, the dragon, and all those things. Eh? Now, we can understand all those truths, but let's not demean human beings. Let's not denigrate them. You don't have to put people down in order to shine, basically. Hindus, I don't believe anything in their system, right? Because I don't believe that we were gods. No. However, I will respect them also. I will give them the chance and the right. And especially we Adventists, we say, oh, we defend religious liberty for all. If that is true, then people have the right even not to believe without us demeaning them or treating them as if they, they were nothing. So that is really, really, really important. Now, just briefly, I'm going to give you a snapshot of Buddhism because I think that too, because there are millions of people around the world you know, who follow these religions. So therefore, it's normal that we... Uh, oh, this is... Oh, sorry. Um, you know, names are not given at random. And you have, in the case of, you know, like Christianity, Christian, uh, Christian means literally partisan of Christ. But Christ, who's Christ? Well, Jesus Christ. Again, the name has a meaning. Now, in English, it doesn't mean anything because Jesus has no meaning in, in English. Why? Because it was transliterated from 
Greek, Jesus. In Greek, it doesn't mean anything either because it was transliterated from Hebrew, Yehoshua. Now, the Hebrew Yehoshua has two components. Yesha means to save, that's the latter part. And Yeho is an abbreviation of God's name, Yahweh. The name of Jesus basically then is Jehovah or Yahweh saves. But if you look at the word Yahweh itself, it has meaning. It, it is from a Hebrew root, Haya, it means to be. Literally, the one who is, the everlasting one, God, comes to save. That is the story. So the name, basically, we are partisan of the one who is eternal, the everlasting one, the creator, who has come to save. That is Christian story. But you see, in, even in the name Christian, already we find that. And of course, Christ means the anointed one, etc., because he was the prophet, the priest, the king, sacrificed at the same time. However, when you look at Buddhism, the same thing happened. The word Buddha, you know, uh, though it designates a person, is not a surname, but an epithet, meaning an enlightened one. You see, every religion will take a name according to what is the most important. As I say, Christianity, everlasting God, God, not a creature, not an angel, came to save us. Right? Buddhism, what is important? Enlightenment. Oh, why is that important? Now notice, interestingly, many of the names, it refers to an experience primarily connected to the story of a person called Siddhartha Gautama. Huh? Known, by the way, as Sakyamuni, the sage or the wise one of the Sakya people. Huh? All these words are not just used at random. So understanding... The story of Buddhism helps us also better understand what is it that they really value. Now, the Sanskrit word uh, suggests the idea of, 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 perfe uh, of perfection. Sorry, you know. So basically, the designation Gautama is a name of the clan to which the Buddha belonged. So the word Tathayata, this was a title given to the Buddha after his enlightenment meaning the thus perfected one. So all the names that Buddhists use, they use in light of the stories that they are trying to convey. Uh, the word sugata, by the way, used also means a happy. <laughs> you know, so what are we talking about? Various uh, forms of Buddhism. You have diversity, and I'm not going to go through those details here. That's not the point. Uh, you, you have various branches, school of thought, traditions and practices. By the way, this is true for Christianity. This is true for Islam, as I mentioned this morning, right? Various uh, branches and schools of thought and so forth. So you, you find the same thing in Buddhism also. Buddhism in China is not the same as Buddhism in Japan, not the same as Buddhism in Sri Lanka, etc., etc. You have different schools also. That is the reason why, as Adventists, the best way for us is to engage the people to know from which tradition they are. You go to uh, uh, Thailand, whether, you know, uh, <coughs> there again, another form of Buddhism. And fascinating, but by talking to people, then we understand, you know, I mentioned this. Uh, the Mahayana schools in Northeast Asia, the Tantric in Tibet, the Dalai Lama is part of this Buddhism, Zen Buddhism in, in Japan. And you have various other trends, traditional, local, etc., etc. So let me move on to just go now to what are the problems that Buddhists, and uh, yeah, there's just too much here. I'm just gonna, okay. The key characteristics, what do you have? Dharma. Okay. Uh, remember, in Hinduism, Dharma was like the cosmic order and so forth. But the Buddha, the, Buddhic, the Buddhist Dharmic is really different. Listen to this. The word Dharma is rich and complex. This is like, the, like a summary of the religion. It is the teaching of Buddha. Dharma is the norm, law, or nature. 
It is the truth, ultimate reality, according to Buddhists again. It is also righteousness, virtue, morality. So this is important. By the way, this is like when you hear a Seventh-day Adventist say, oh, righteousness by faith. Right? You hear that all the time in our midst, you know. Oh, what we need is the righteousness of Christ. Well, uh, it means certain things, right? And we have to be actually clear about that. So this is the same thing. When Buddhists use the word dharma, it's like a word that is like a code word among Buddhists. Now, it could mean tradition, rule, duty, principle. It could, could, it could even mean justice and impartiality or condition. Now, what are the characteristics of human existence? Now you have to understand this. This is key. Remember, Hinduism, another world of Atman, the soul, Brahman, right? Separation and stuff. In Buddhist, no such thing as even what we call soul. For Buddhist, there are three marks of existence. Impermanence, meaning nothing is stable. Dislocation or suffering. And then the third thing is what they call illusion of self. By the way, welcome to our world of diverse beliefs. <laughs> Think about it. Eh? But it's worth it to know and then to share the gospel accordingly. The hallmark of Buddhism is a doctrine of no self. You know what you call myself? <laughs> Probably the closest Jesus, remember? The condition to be a disciple, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny what? Self. Take up his cross and follow me. Buddhist, they say there's no such thing as self anyway, in the first place. Mm? Uh, so that's really the hallmark because belief in a permanent indivisible autonomous self is an illusion according to Buddhists and the belief in such a self is the cause of all suffering because they think now again this is their thinking that if I have a self well I have to protect it <laughs> I have to take care of it and this is the beginning of suffering let me give you a key. Buddhists, everything that they are saying revolves around the idea of how to avoid suffering. That is what Buddha was after. Trying to understand human suffering and the cure of it. So basically, huh? so <laughs> Buddha, by the way, provided a detailed analysis of the constituents of the mind and body most commonly dividing them into five groups or category. You know, I don't need to go through all this here. It, it will take time. But basically, there's no such thing as a permanent self. These are just aggregates. What you were yesterday and today, different, they will say. It's like you can never, and by the way, this is a Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, who said it, you can never bath on the same river twice. twice. Why? Because the water flows anyway. It's not the same. This to say that all things are impermanent. Nothing stays, even yourself. These are just passing feelings. And this is the, the reason why Buddhists, when they see you angry, they will say, well, it will pass too. Because it is just a state. Hmm? Now, so uh, let me go then just to, to uh, a little furthermore. Hmm? There's no self. These are just aggregates and changing situations. So what are the problems? What are you? There are three problems, according to Buddhists. Now, think about this. Every religion is an answer to a problem or to problems, right? So according to Buddhists, the problems, first of all, is greed. And greed is connected to another problem that is called desire. Remember, they are just trying to understand the cause of suffering. Hinduism is another world. Islam is another world. But hey, that's our world. So we ought to understand why, the, why is it that they think the way they do. Now, the first 
one is greed because of desire. The second problem is hatred. And the, second, uh, the third one is delusion. And the, this illusion or delusion is connected to the idea of self. These are like the plagues or the, 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 the maladies, the sickness of humanity. Greed. So how do you solve this? Greed. How do you solve hatred problem? How do you solve this illusion? That's why the cardinal doctrine is the idea of there's no self. What you call desire is just a passing thing, they will say. Okay? Now again, we're trying to understand. And that's why what some people will call materialism and so forth, oh, have very good Buddhism, that's not the most important. Okay. Let's move on. What are the solutions then? What are the goals of the path? Attain liberation. Again, by the way, if Hindu calls it moksha, liberation, Buddhist, they call it nirvana. Okay? So two different words, two different trajectory and experience, but clearly, the goal of the path is to attain nirvana, and again, and this is understandable, be liberated from suffering. And then the third one, extension of all desire. <laughs> because if the problem is desire, right? You desire, you suffer. Why? Because you don't have what you desire. Oh, you desire, you suffer. Why? Because if you have it, you will try to fight in order to keep it, and you suffer. <laughs> so this is really what gradually brought Buddhism to start thinking. Maybe the real value of life is not in things that we get or don't get. So, the goal of life, reaching nirvana, the ultimate goal. Okay, so Buddhists then uh, decided to have three jewels. Now, if I say there were three poisons, right, that I just mentioned here, greed, hatred, and illusion, delusion, okay? So they have also three jewels. One, they would say, Buddhan uh, Saranam Gashami. Basically, I take refuge in Buddha because of his doctrine and so forth and so on, they would say. The second one, the Dharma, Dharma Saranam Gachami, I take refuge in the law of Dharma again. And then finally, this one, Sangham Saranam Gachami, I take refuge in the community of Sangham. That's why you have Buddhist monks together, you know, experiencing uh, detachment. That word is very important in the Buddhist world, detachment. By the way, my next presentation is going to be of a different world, the secular and the postmodern. Right? How did we get to where we are today in our world? But that's a different philosophy. Uh, when do we have to stop here now again? Sorry. 45. Okay. Okay. And then finally, you have here. Uh, a fourth one that was added. But you have to know just, just briefly, the foundation of Buddhist belief are the four noble truths. Huh? Dukkha, life is suffering, and that is understandable. Suffering is caused by ignorance and desire. Nirvana, suffering can end when nirvana is achieved. Uh, suffering can end rather when nirvana can achieve. It is achieved when ignorance is overcome and desire defeated. So basically, then finally, the way to the nirvana is the eightfold path. And maybe let me just finish mentioning what are the eightfold paths. The first two is called wisdom, meaning the right understanding. Of course, understanding the way Buddha understands things here. Right intent, thought, morality, right speech, right action, discipline, right living, etc. And then you have... Uh, 
finally, also, well, the right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. You see, these are different from the yoga of Hinduism that I mentioned uh, earlier. One more thing before I uh, end here, uh, just briefly. One more thing that I wanted to just share with you. Three things that are important to Buddhism. Remember, I talked to you about the three poisons. I talked to you about the three jewels. So here you have, really, solutions. What Buddhists value most? One is wisdom. Of course, that means being connected to Buddha. There's the second one, compassion. That's why you have Buddhists, and many of them vegetarian and all these things, because the compassion extends also to that. And then finally, harmlessness, non-violence. This is extremely important in Buddhist world. So Adventists often find a lot in common with Buddhists, actually, you know, as to really look carefully about the content of the religion. Now, the philosophical foundations are different. The trajectories of beliefs are different. But still, these have much, much in common in terms of values. Uh, I could talk to you now, but time will not allow. Uh, I'll talk to you more about the, um, you know, like the what is permissible, what is taboo in Buddhism, because this will help also uh, not to offend Buddhists unnecessarily. You know, so uh, <laughs> there are some things are just common sense. If you know that, if if really compassion is important, well. Of course, you will favor in talking to Buddhism, uh, in talking to Buddhists, uh, the, the story of Jesus and his compassion, right? Uh, that's your, again, this is just testifying. But as I was saying this morning, it is the Holy Spirit that can touch hearts, but whether wisdom or harmlessness, this is very important for Adventists. Now, there was a time many Adventists were anti-military and all that, you know, they are more and so forth. But now the gray zone in some, in, in some areas, unfortunately. But something is sure, Adventists value harmlessness, right? So this is also an area where uh, we can have common ground with Buddhists and share the, about the Prince of Peace, right? Jesus, right? Uh, how he came to restore, not to harm. He will not do anything to harm anyone, etc., etc. So then you let the Holy Spirit deal with people, uh, you know, influence so that they can see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus Christ, and so forth. So uh, I really apologize. I know I was very ambitious to try to even, you know, normally one world religion would have been enough, not even enough time for that. But at least I want to tease your imagination because there's much to know, uh, and it, this is not intimidating because, you know, you get to learn from your neighbors who are Buddhists and Hindus and so forth, but know who you are. Uh, no syncretism, no dilution of the truth, but know who you are. So that's why I started first this morning talking to you about the new covenant of God, what we are really all about, what is it that we are restoring by God's grace. So. Uh, we have, when do we, let me see, I, I have to just read my uh, thing. The next one is four, right? Okay, so we have about 15 minutes. I'm so sorry, I spoke too long. That is because, uh, you know, I, want, I treated two topics in one, uh, basically. But if you, can we take five minutes just for questions in case? Something was not clear, but if you have to go to another or somewhere else, that's fine. But if not, next will be secularism and postmodernism and post-truth. You know, our, we will try to do as much as we can. Yes. No answer. <laughs> no answer. Okay. So we, we have about uh, 10, uh, 15 minutes before, before our next presentation and last for the day. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. 
GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.